welcome to the EdTech Podcast. My name is Rose Wacken and I'm your host. I'm a professor of learner-centered design at UCL's Institute of Education and founder of Educate Ventures Research. Today, actually, I'm really excited about the guests we've got here in our podcast. We're lucky to have in the online studio two very special guests, Nina Hunterman, Chief Academic Officer at Chegg, and Jim Knight, Lord Knight of Weymouth and a member of the House of Lords. And we're gathered today to talk about AI, specifically AI's role in educational and academic effectiveness and its present and future place in our educational ecosystems. And anybody and everyone knows that AI has been a very hot topic um, in the news and the media in general at the moment. We've got AI products and services uh, coming forward weekly, it seems. And there's lots and lots and lots happening in the AI innovation space all over the world. So there are a huge number of questions being raised. We have experts who are telling us that we need to be really concerned and we have experts who are telling us that we don't need to be really concerned. So it's very hard for all of us to navigate this space. And I think particularly in education. So that's why I'm really very excited about the episode we're recording today and the guests that we have here with us. So I'm going to start off. And as I ask the first question, Nina and Jim, I'm hoping that you can say a little bit about yourselves. And do please, Nina, say a little bit about Chegg as you introduce yourself, because I think it would be really useful for our listeners uh, to understand a, a bit about Chegg, please. So I'm going to start with a question that really is about ethics and AI. We're hearing quite a lot about regulation of AI. We know we have the European AI Act and many other conversations about regulation happening as well. And obviously there are concerns about ethics. So how do you at Chegg go about making sure that the way that you're using AI is ethical? Thanks, Rose. It's great to be on the podcast. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, So yes, my background briefly is I was an educator, a college professor. I was in the classroom for about 20 years and decided to make the move over to ed tech um, about 2015. First at a very large online um, platform um, that worked with university partners to provide education to the world. That organization was called edX. And then almost two years ago, I joined Chegg. Chegg is has about 30 million monthly users, 8 million subscribers to a full suite of online study support um, and academic help services. And perhaps um, our most popular is what we call our Q&A, where students who are struggling with a problem that's been uh, as part of their academic studies, they can ask a question and either receive an archive um, solution that shows really clearly a step-by-step how you solve this problem with explanations and points to other resources to help students further understand. Um, If that question is not in our archive, then we actually have an incredible network of 150,000 vetted subject matter experts who similarly will provide solutions that helps a student work through the problems they understand how to solve it. So I really appreciate the question about ethics um, and AI. I think ethics in education generally is really important. We should always be thinking about our role as as educators in the ethical development of our students. And I think that when you employ AI, that question is as, you know, is as important, if not even more so. So the way that we're thinking about it at Chegg is that, you know, first and foremost, what our students are really interested in is academic support that they can trust, right? They're in a moment very often where they're struggling um, and they're stressed. And so, you know, if we're going to be providing them support to get through that moment to help them get them unstuck, we certainly want to make sure that that is is accurate and, and helpful information. So we have a quality insurance process for our human experts, and we're doing very similar as we develop. I'm hoping we'll be able to talk more about it as we develop our AI product for for students. So, you know, first and foremost, you know, how do we make sure we maintain the same level of quality for any kind of AI generated um, educational material as we do for our human experts? So that QC process. 
But then I also think it's equally important um, because students are not only, um, you know, using AI in their schoolwork, they're going to be expected and they are expecting that it is going to be changing their professional lives as well. And so as we are engaging students with AI technologies through um, our products and services, we want to teach students about that technology. How do you ask it questions? How do you validate the information that you're getting from those questions? Um, you know, be mindful of how the technology generates, for example, with, you know, a large language model, how it even generates answers, where those solutions and explanations are coming from. I have a background in media literacy. Um, my academic area and subject area was communication and media studies. And when I think about the importance of teaching students how to use AI, I do like to think about grounding it in a very similar media literacy curriculum. And at its base, a media literacy curriculum, or very simplified, is you want to train the student in how to be critical of the media they're receiving. I think we can use some of the same principles with AI. So who created this technology? What is the purpose you know, of what, what did the creator have in mind for that? Where is this information coming from? How can you validate it? Is it trustworthy? So it's just a place to start. There's a lot more to unpack with AI, but, um, but I think that that can provide a really great framework to start. And again, make sure that students who are using it are those sort of critical consumers. Absolutely. Thanks, Nina. That's such a great perspective. I couldn't agree with you more. I think however we handle the regulatory issues around AI and ethics, there's always a need for an educated population, isn't there? So teaching people about AI is, I think, crucial to ensuring that we give it the best chance of being developed and used ethically. Jim, you and I have known each other for quite a long time, and and we've had lots of conversations about AI and ethics in the past. And, you know, you've you've helped us a lot with the Institute for Ethical AI and Education. Now we feel in a really tricky situation, even more so because we have so many AI products coming on the market and so many of them targeting education. And yet we've still got this sort of dilemma of not really having the regulation in place. So how do we deal with this tension between lots of innovation, lots of things coming along, and and then not quite having the right regulation quite in place at the moment? You know, as a policymaker, this must be something of a challenge you face a lot of the time. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, thanks, Rose. And look, by way of introduction, Jim Knight, uh, also known as Lord Knight of Weymouth, and yeah, you know, 17 years ago, roughly, uh, the then UK Prime Minister Tony Blair asked me to be schools minister. So plucked from the glorious fields of being the minister for rural affairs, I, I ended up being in charge of 25,000 schools in England. And I've sort of stayed with it ever since. I had a particular interest in technology uh, during my three glorious years uh, in schools. And I've then done various roles since, as well as joining the House of Lords in in the UK's upper house. Um, So uh, a senior exec at TES for seven years, which is a a platform that engages uh, teachers with jobs and resources and so on, but but did acquire two or three AI businesses during the time uh, that I was there around things like timetabling and seating plans for behavior purposes and all sorts of weirdness. And I am now on the board of Century Tech, just to uh, finish off my disclosure of interests. Um, and, and Century is a, a, a platform teaching um, particularly maths, English and science, but adding other parts of the curriculum um, as uh, and using forms of adaptive learning, um, thanks to uh, forms of AI. So um, I've and you've been educating me all along the way, Rose. So, uh, you know, I'm hugely grateful to you. This question around innovation and regulation. Look, I've just been spending a huge amount of my time in the last few months um, on the online safety bill in the UK Parliament, which is our brave attempt here in the UK to regulate social media. And, and Nina, I was really happy to hear you talk about media literacy because we, we, we finally managed to persuade the government to concede that we would give our regulator a responsibility and extend its current responsibility on media literacy to the public as a whole, not just uh, in schools. 
and put some requirements on technology companies themselves to invest in media literacy as, as part of that effort. And one of the issues, you know, it's taken us about four years to do this piece of regulation. I was on a, a pre-legislative scrutiny joint committee, uh, and just as we were finishing, Meta changed its name and announced all of its investment in the metaverse. Um, and while we've been just debating it in our phase in the upper house, uh, ChatGPT was launched and, and the whole generative AI thing landed in our public discourse. And uh, it's very, very hard for legislators and they're, you know, to keep ahead of the technology. It's very hard to write regulation that is future-proofed. And we've been debating that uh, quite a lot. And there are quite a few issues that we are concerned about. We're concerned about uh, bias in the data, of course, and uh, and there's a sort of circularity to that because if if certain parts of the segments of the population don't use it because they're underrepresented in the data and therefore there is bias, then the algorithms won't learn from their data. They'll just embed themselves even more in the data of the people that were using it in the first place. So there's a sort of a little bit of a, a catch too around some of that. There are issues around intrusion in some of the um, the AI that is used around monitoring and you know, issues around general monitoring have also been part of our regulatory debate. There are concerns about whether using the technology widens gaps. We still have a lot of children that don't have much access to technology. And if we are embedding technology in teaching and learning, uh, and we still have some families and some children who don't have access at home, uh, how are we going to deal with that ethical issue? There are issues around the workforce and whether or not we're empowering or disempowering and whether we're using AI to manage them. You know, I, I, I chair the Future of Work group in our parliament and I've been contacted by someone who works as an examiner for one of our exam boards and she complained that she was being managed by algorithm around uh, the throughput of work and scripts that she had to mark and if she got behind you know and the algorithm was telling her how productive she was or she wasn't and it was adding to a considerable amount of workload stress for her but at the same time uh, one of the businesses that we acquired when I was at Tez was a fantastic um, business I thought around uh, very much AI powered around timetabling so that it would allow schools to then be able to deploy the workforce much more flexibly and be a much more flexible employer. And, and there was an empowerment to that. Um, so there's, there's so much excitement that I have around the innovation. And, you know, and, and then I went to a meeting in our parliament this week that had you know, people from the education world all being really miserable about AI and really terrified of it and thinking that, you know, we were going to hell in a handcart and we should all run away from it and regulators should keep everyone free of it. And you're kind of going, well, well, no, you know, you can't keep the real world out of schools. And, and then finally, finally, sorry, I've gone on, but, uh, and then I read Rose, your article in the Guardian, um, which articulated what I've been trying to say for a little while, which is it, there is this opportunity to use this to redefine w what we do in education. And, uh, you know, I was talking to Conrad Wolfram from Wolfram Technologies that he'd used some of his technology, you know, within, uh, attached to ChatGPT and it's called 99% in mass A level, you know, which is a top, qualification requirement for a lot of university courses in Britain. And if a machine is getting 99% in that qualification, then we're just training our kids to be outcompeted by machines and we have to do it all differently. And that's massively exciting, but really scary for some people. Thanks, Jim. You raised so many important points, as did Nina. And, and it's really interesting to hear you talking about AI that's not ChatGPT, as well as obviously, you know, we know we have ChatGPT and it presents lots of challenge, not least ethically, because it's not just the data that's used in the algorithm that might be biased or maybe incorrect and the risks of hallucinations. There's also what happens to the data that we put into it. So there's lots of questions about that. But it's really important to see AI more broadly, as you highlight, and it is potentially so useful. And, and, and thank you for um, pointing out the article in The Guardian, which really was trying to 
to say, look, yes, education is going to change, but it doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can be a really good thing. And it's a great opportunity to think about these higher order thinking skills. Nina's talked about critical thinking and I couldn't agree more. You know, we need students to be able to tell truth from fiction. We need them to be critical customers of whatever's being offered to them. So I think it is extremely important. And one of the ironies that I think is is a beautiful irony is that whilst what's making us think about this is AI, and we're seeing AI in quite a negative light a lot of the time, as you've already drawn attention to, Jim, AI is one of the things that can help us to track these higher order thinking skills and to actually make them measurable. Because I think part of the problem and part of the fear is that for many people, particularly in policy making, they want to be able to measure something. And really, AI is the future in terms of being able to measure a lot of these higher order thinking skills that we previously haven't been able to measure. So it kind of highlights the breadth of opportunity that AI does bring. But as we've discussed, there are also, of course, concerns and risks around ethics and a lot of fear. I remember, because I'm old enough to remember, (laughs) when the internet was first introduced into schools, and I was going into schools at that time, primary and secondary schools, and, and talking to various teachers. And I know so many head teachers said to me, I wish we could just cut it out and wish we didn't have it, wish we could stop it because it's causing us so many problems, things that happen in school are over, overflowing into outer school, outer schools overflowing into in-school. And, it, it, and I felt for them that you can't hold back progress. So going back to what Nina has already said about educating people about AI feels supremely important in this space. Jim, I can see you. Yeah, just, just to <laughs> look, I, I really don't blame teachers for being sceptical, you know, and, you know, in my time as as schools minister, we spent a lot of money on technology in classrooms and it it doesn't, you know, it doesn't fill me with joy to admit that a lot of that didn't really add too much value. And, and so we've got to be mindful of, of healthy cynicism, but uh, and we've got to be mindful that if we're talking about it being able to fuel revolutionary change, that that is really threatening. Uh, even though, for me as a policymaker and a campaigner for change, it excites me hugely. Uh, absolutely, Jim. I, I'm with you. I don't blame teachers at all. I can I can only too well empathise having taught in schools and colleges as well as universities with the challenges they face. And I think for many of them, it is very scary. And, and I feel, you know, a responsibility as an educator about AI to try and help people understand enough to perhaps feel a little bit less scared about it. So I think we do need to do that for sure. Nina, I'd love to come back to you and talk to you a little bit about something I know is close to your heart. And that is how do we evidence that the way we're using our technology and in particular in the way we're using AI is actually effective? You know, you talked about students, you know, wanting that help in the moment, don't they? A lot of the people who, who use Chegg are there. They need an answer to a question and they need it there now because they've got an assignment and it's urgent for them. So so what are you, what's your thinking about how you can be sure that what you're providing for students is effective and, and how do you look at evidencing that? Yeah, thank you for that question, Rose. So one of the key roles that I um, play at Chegg and with the team that I've built is to make sure that we're infusing our products and services in evidence-based learning science. So to your point, uh, the worked example is a great pedagogy for helping students who are very new to material um, to to learn it, to to see how others break it down, to explain each step. Um, And now we have this incredible opportunity to, in that moment, do the next important part of that kind of exercise, which is, okay, now you try to kind of pass, and I'll use an old metaphor, to pass the chalk back and forth between um, the quote-unquote AI instructor and the student to get input from them. Did you understand it? What didn't you understand about it? And I'm really glad that you brought, both of you brought up that 
our conversation right now about AI in, the, in society is so focused on, on large language models, chat GPT, obviously being most people's first encounter that they're aware of with AI, although AI has been behind a lot of commercial products that we use. But there is an incredible uh, corpus of research and evidence about adaptive tutoring and intelligent tutoring machines that are using AI not just to generate content, but in fact, to understand student learning, to take the data from, you know, as simple as how many questions did a student try? Did they get right? Did they get wrong? What parts of a question didn't they understand? And then, you know, what material do you want to give them to be able to move them forward in their understanding? You know, AI systems, student models, learning models are all sort of behind that. So for me, what makes me so excited is not just taking the generative AI capabilities that large language models provide, but to connect that to um, models that we understand about student learning that are based on, again, sort of learning science grounded in that evidence. So I'll just give you just to sort of make this a little bit hopefully more concrete. There's this concept um, in learning science called um, zone of proximal development, right? And that is you want to push a student when they're learning just beyond what they're capable of doing and what they already know. If you go too far, they'll get frustrated, cognitive load will increase, they'll give up. If it's too easy, boredom comes in and they may similarly give up and get demotivated. So it's real sweet spot for students, right, is to get that proximal zone. Well, in a one-on-one -on -one tutoring session in person, there's so many cues that you have as an instructor as you're working with a student, literally sitting next to them, either, you know, on a virtual whiteboard or physically in the classroom, where you can get, how are you doing here? See how they're working through a problem. Well, that's hard to scale, so difficult to scale. But now with AI, we can do that. So what what I want to see us do is, yes, generate the content that the student needs in the moment and then instantly gather feedback from them about how they're grappling with that content and then use that based on, you know, proven models of how students learn to then give them the next, what is the next thing to work on? Like, you're not ready to move on. Oh, you can, you can move on to this now. Um, give them opportunities for reflection and give them feedback. So, you know, adaptive learning, intelligent tutoring, incredible, great work around that. Rose, you yourself involved in so much uh, development there. But one of the challenges for scaling that has what well, has been the generation of enough content appropriately tagged with metadata to be able to adapt the system. So you may have you know, a thousand students in a system. How many practice questions at all these different levels of challenge, you know, to hit that zone of proximal development, do you need to generate? Well, in the past, humans, people had to do this. And it was a huge, it is a huge effort. You know, as a professor, even just creating new test questions every semester, you know, it was a huge effort. That's where I do think generative AI, you know, prompt engineered correctly, uh, you know, well-designed can maybe finally get us past what has been the challenge of scaling adaptive learning systems, which has been that content generation. Such a good point, Nina. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, you say zone of box development, that is music to my ears. My PhD thesis was on the zone of proximal development. <laughs> and it's great to hear you say that. I, um, complete believer in it. So I find that really fascinating. And just another interesting fact is the Director of Research and Training at Educate Ventures Research, her thesis also involved the zone of proximal development. But she has an advantage over both of us in that she's Russian, so she can actually read the original work because the zone of proximal development was written by somebody called Lev Vygotsky, who was Russian. So you could not have picked a better example from my perspective. And you're so right. Scaling adaptive learning systems is so powerful. I, there's a lot of fear, I think, I'm reading in various different articles where people are saying, oh, it's going to replace teachers. This AI is going to replace teachers. Even 
very well respected AI scientists, you know, have been making these kind of comments here in the UK, saying, oh, well, the classroom's going to change and it's not going to have as many teachers in it because we're going to have all these adaptive systems. And it and I think, no, that's not how these adaptive systems work. They're a complement. But at the same time, if I'm a child who has no human teacher, and yet I could have an adaptive AI system, that would be so brilliant because I don't have a teacher. Do you know what I mean? So I think these systems are hugely valuable as an addition to a teacher when there is a teacher, but also great for students who just don't have a human teacher. I really want to just pause on and underscore that comment, Rose, because there's often this false dichotomy in conversations about AI. And and I'm not talking about will it replace teachers or will it not? It's actually the assumption that all students right now have access to teachers and that we're replacing that. And that's a fallacy. If you start there, if you assume that all students already have access to the teachers they need with the kind of feedback they need to develop, then yeah, maybe the 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 dichotomy of like yes or no, you know, teachers will be replaced. But that's actually not where we're starting from. So I, I really appreciate you bringing that up, uh, Rose, because until we do have excellent teachers, whether they're AI or human, or most likely a combination of both. Being concerned about AI replacing teachers is, again, it's just a false premise. Couldn't agree with you more. Thanks, Nina. Jim, over to you. Well, two things from there. And, uh, yeah, of course I agree with both of you. I I think the the question around replacing teachers and all of that stuff, uh, yeah, I mean, there are parts of the world where it's very, very difficult for for children to access teachers, and and this is exciting. I understand, again, teachers being scared that that if it can be used in those contexts, it'll be used to replace them. And I understand the concern that you and I, Rose, have talked about before, that you might end up with the privileged having a human teacher and the underprivileged uh, having a machine. And uh, we've got to use this to empower and improve the quality of teaching for the poorest as well as the richest, you know, uh, equity has to be part of uh, the conversation. But it's exciting at a time when, you know, it's hard to think of a jurisdiction anywhere, certainly in the Western world, that hasn't got a, a real shortage of people wanting to be teachers and a real problem retaining them in the profession. But if we can increase the capacity and the effectiveness of teachers, that's a really exciting thing. And then in respect of uh, I mean, Stuart Russell is a, uh, was a person that came to mind when you were talking about AI experts um, opining on whether or not it would replace teachers. And I have huge respect for, for Stuart Russell's thinking around AI generally. But there, the danger, even for someone like him, is that they see the change that AI brings and they assume that everything else remains static. And and the opportunity, as as previously discussed, I suppose, is we can now start to think about doing things that were previously inconceivable. And uh, you, know, you and I have talked about, you know, we've got the, if you like, the silos of the subjects going you know, vertically, if you like, but we now have the opportunity to weave horizontally across those subjects um, other skills that we might want uh, people to have their literacy, their numeracy, their digital literacy, their oracy, sustainability. There's a whole bunch of things that you want to be able to teach across the curriculum, but that's harder for teachers to do that. And it's harder for them to be able to record the achievement of, of their learners around those sort of cross-cutting, cross-curricular things. But with technology, this becomes something that is conceivable. And that's part of the excitement. Absolutely. It's so much part of the excitement. I think you know, doing things that were previously inconceivable is exciting. But I think it's also scary because for some people, they feel challenged enough as it is in, in the role that they have. And then there's this new thing and, and you don't know where it's going to go. And, and it's a little bit like the conversation we had at the start, trying to future-proof regulation because you can't predict where things are going to go it is scary um and and i think 
we do have to recognise that, but it's also hugely exciting. And, and really, this relates to, to, to the final question I, I wanted to ask you both, and that is, how do we cut through the huge amount of information that's coming our way about AI. So I think just in the last few days, we've got Elon Musk saying that his new artificial intelligence company called XAI can be trusted more than OpenAI. And then we've got Nick Clegg speaking on behalf of Meta saying that because their model is going to be open source, that's going to be more accurate and more trustworthy. And then we've got a whole load of think pieces coming that say one thing and then somebody comes along and contradicts the other. For people who don't know anything about AI, it must be a complete and utter, you know, confusion. For people who do know something about AI, it's virtually impossible to keep up. So if you don't know anything about AI, it must be really hard to know what should you read? How do you know which things you should be taking notice of and which things you shouldn't? So how do we help people cut through what in some cases is noise to know what it is they can trust. How can we develop these sort of trusted sources and and and, and help people to, to really want to understand AI and feel able to understand AI? Because I have a fear that for many people it will just feel too overwhelming and, and therefore it leaves them with a difficulty in seeing how do I engage with this? It just feels too big. Nina, coming back to you first, do you have any thoughts on this? I'm sure you do. <laughs> I do, and, and I will keep them sort of grounded in, in the work that we're doing here at Chegg, and I'll leave it to, to Lord Knight to talk much more broadly. Um, yeah, I, I think this is a really important question. And we're we're seeing it voiced by the students that we're engaging with as we go through our development process. Um, so we've been spending this summer with you know a, a, a small group of students in our alpha product and which is an AI based uh, AI generated product. So what we're hearing from them is exactly what you described, Rose. Is a is is somewhat a concern of like we really students are saying we really appreciate the human. Um, behind, you know, Chegg's help. We've always had such strong trust from students because we have, you know, as I said, 150,000 subject matter experts providing information that breaks it down in ways the students understand. Um, and some of what they struggle with, with some generic LLMs, is that the information when they ask a question doesn't come back to them in a way that, that they feel they can trust. So that certainly goes back to my original question of, of, of helping students understand the kinds of questions they should be asking. And I'm actually glad that they have that bit of skepticism because I think that's, that's healthy. Um, but as we move forward, um, it's really important to, to us that our users and students continue to understand that there are humans in the loop with what we're developing. Um, they're in the loop with the QC process. They'll, you know, still be in the loop, you know, um, helping students as they are having challenges. So there's, you know, grounding um, the AI development in humans, I think is, is still absolutely critical. And this will be challenged for sure for a lot of general um, gen generalized LLMs. But what I'm really excited about is seeing what we really believe in, you know, is this verticalization, the specialization of large language models that are fit for purpose. And of course, what we're developing is, you know, an experience and an, and an AI supported model that is fit for learning, that is fit for purpose for education. So that when students do ask it a question, it's going to respond differently than a generic LLM. It's going to take into account that you are likely, you know, unfamiliar with this concept, 
We're going to break it down into consumable, understandable bits. We're going to provide explanations. So the interaction with with our AI system will be designed for that circumstance. And I I believe that that is part of building the trust that people will have with with these systems. You know, if, if you encounter in some other, you know, workforce, if you're encountering a system that was designed on the data that your organization has, that you know has the 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 same quality assurance that your organization brings you know to its to its systems then you're more likely to trust that than one you're unfamiliar with right so we're we're taking that approach of of taking the trust we already have with students and making sure we continue to to signal that trust by developing for them a system that is really fit fit for purpose that makes so much sense, Nina. And I think it's really important that you brought up this human in the loop point. Now, I know in your case, the humans in the loop know what they're doing. So my comment is not directed <laughs> at you or Che, but I do feel there's a risk of that statement being abused. You know, that some providers will say, oh, don't worry, there's a human in the loop. But then the question is, well, what does that human know? Do you know what I mean? Is that human really an expert? Because I, you know, I, and I think one of the things perhaps we need to help um, people do is to know what they should question. The work that we did for the Institute for Ethical AI and Ed was basically to produce a framework that was full of questions that educators should ask of companies that were trying to sell them AI. And that may need some updating now, but I think. It is giving people the confidence to ask those questions, to ask, well, you know, what was the data used to train your model? And like you said, so who, where's the human oversight and who are these humans that are overseeing this and, and, and what do they know? So I think it's a really important point that you raise and, and, and a very useful one. Jim, your thoughts? Well, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot there. And, you know, the core question rose about how we help people cut through the noise goes to how much is this an individual's responsibility uh, and how much is there a wider responsibility on the companies and how much is there a responsibility for regulation to, to keep things safe. And we talked earlier on about media literacy and I think it's really important that's not solely left to tech companies because they're liable that they're likely to put the emphasis on on the individual and almost sort of gaslight them if they you know if they have a problem um, that it's it's their problem that they they just didn't understand how the system worked and uh, and and we don't want uh, we don't want that that's not reasonable so the media literacy has to cover off yeah the purpose yeah what is what is the purpose of this uh, tool of this uh, service what's the business model who owns it. Uh, you know, if it's free, how are they making their money out of you? What are they going to do with your data? Um, what are the, your rights over that data? Have you given the consent in that very tedious terms and conditions that you just accepted? Um, and uh, is that written in a way that is easy enough for you to be able to understand if you if you want to? And are there things that we can do around data? You know, I'm, we've got some data protection legislation coming into coming through. Parliament at the moment. I'm very interested in whether or not we can redefine in law data as being an asset. That's an asset that that is is actually mine. I'm licensing it to a tech company. It's not their data. It's my data. It's their algorithm. It's their system that's manipulating the data. But it's my data, and that means that the the bereaved parents that I've met, who um, whose children committed suicide as a result of the online harms that were thrust at them by platforms who then couldn't get hold of the data that their child saw as as part of grieving and understanding what happened, that that data could be left to them as part of the estate upon someone dying and that they then have access to that. They have a right to that because it becomes their data. Um, So there are some interesting things there. Ultimately, I think we need to regulate in order to, as far as we possibly can, kind of impose a duty of care that the service provider has to deliver to its users. And it can do that, yes, through media literacy in the 
the online safety bill. We've gone with uh, user empowerment tools as well so that you can uh, offer users uh, toggling things on and off that they want and that they don't want um, so that they, they have a little bit more power over what, what, they, what they see and what they don't. Um, the terms and conditions, as I've said, should be understandable and legible. And, and one day we might get an AI I can use to read all the terms and conditions for me, but that understands me well enough to know what I care about and what I don't and just points out flags for me, the bits I should read, because it's all very boring. And there are some things that regulators need to make illegal. And then then finally, I think there's a there's an interesting notion that has been put to me, which is, look, you know, doctors have a Hippocratic oath. There are other professions where you sign up to an ethical code as part of being in that profession and being a member of that professional body. Is there something to be done with software engineering uh, and the people who design these things so that ethically they are making them safe by design and that they are, are, are signed up to that ethical code? And then we can ask the people who own the service providers, whether or not they only employ engineers who are part of those professional bodies, because then we have almost by definition a certain amount of ethical safeguard that's built in to the way these services are being developed. And that's all part of going back to what we were talking about earlier. That's all part of trying to think through not how do we regulate this next piece of technology, although there will be some harms and some things that we just hadn't thought of um, that will need us to keep on top of it, but can we design regimes that will work as the technology changes and things like that idea of the ethical code, which may or may not work, I'm, you know, I'm perfectly happy to be persuaded that it's, it's naive and ridiculous, but um, are there things that we can do that would be enduring and that would work almost regardless of what is then designed. That's fascinating. Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see how that progresses, that idea around ethical codes of practice. For many years, as somebody who works for many years in the computer science and artificial intelligence department, you know, the ethics course was the thing that was tagged on the end as a voluntary option. You know, I think we have improved the way that it is now integrated, but I think there's certainly room for more of that, definitely. So it's just, it's part of who you are and what you are in, in the same way. That analogy with the doctors, I think it is really important, Jim. Another couple of things that I want to pick up on, absolutely, data it, it, is so fundamental to modern machine learning AI. And you're right about we need to think about it differently. I think data trusts are quite an interesting um, route forward on this, whereby, you know, you are able to and you don't even actually have to give your data. You can just give the rights to your data to trustees who then represent a large number of people and can have a bigger voice with some of the tech companies in order to try and make changes, in order to try and help protect the rights of those individuals. So I think that's an interesting way forward. Jim, I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I've been interested in that for a little while. And, you know, at the braver end of trying to think this through as a policy opportunity, if you like, you go to the National Health Service here, here in England. So that has the largest amount of health data of any body in the world, I would I would imagine. You know, it's the largest employer in Europe. It's a huge um, health data set. And there are very, very proper worries about uh, personal health data and that being shared and shared for commercial gain. But there has to be a question. If we could find the right way of doing it ethically, the opportunity is there for the NHS to raise quite a lot of money to pay for our healthcare, um, if uh, by by allowing that data to be used for for health related AIs, and in my head, the only solution to that that I can think of that might work is is data trust. You know, should we have a set of principles around the sharing of NHS data that is managed by an independent group of trustees who are legally obliged uh, and legally accountable for um, abiding by those principles that have then been, that have been legislated on, um, that then allow the NHS to 
essentially monetize the richness of our data as being this extraordinary um, health service uh, relative to anybody else's in the planet. That's so interesting, Jim. And let's face it, our National Health Service (laughs) could do with some extra funding. So I hear what you're saying. One last point I want to raise before going back to Nina is I think there's something interesting in what you're saying about the purpose of AI that sometimes we overlook. And that is you can have precisely the same data and even the same algorithm. And yet the product, on the one hand, can be ethical and on the other can be unethical because the purpose of that is different. The purpose of the two products are different. And the example I normally use is if you think about you've got some data and you've got some technology, you've got data about children in classrooms, their facial expressions, what they're saying, you've got an algorithm that uses AI, takes that facial and voice data, and with that data interprets the emotional state of that individual child. Now, there are lots of ethical concerns about doing that, of course. But I could imagine a scenario where that is being done in order to make sure that the teacher knows who needs the most support, when, can intervene in a timely manner. It's done in a very sensible, discreet, private way. It could be a useful tool. But I can also see another scenario when it's basically used to weed out people who are weak, you know, and, and, and deprive them of further education. So same data, same algorithm, very different purpose. So I think your point about purpose is very important. And I think sometimes it gets a bit overlooked. Nina, I'd love to come back to you. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. So we're going to have to close down. And I'd love to go on talking for longer. But I'd just love to hear your kind of final thoughts on this discussion and anything you'd like to raise that you feel we've missed along the way. Yeah, no, it's not so much missed, but just to um, to, to add on to the way in which Jim um, phrased phrased, and I might be mis, mis- saying this, but the, the idea that we need flexible approaches to however we might both companies and governments and universities and school systems might regulate and put guardrails around AI. Because I think because it's so new um, and because it's evolving, um, it you know it might be going too far to shut it down, right? We saw that in the United States, I, I believe so in the UK as well. We saw some schools immediately ban it. And in almost all cases that I'm aware of, they, they undid those bans, like they released those bans. Because the realization that, you know, First, to some extent, Jimmy's out of the bottle. What's more appropriate is to think about all the things that that I that I heard in, in Jim's response, like purpose, also context. Um, your your uh, use of the NIH as a uh, UK's health system makes sense for the UK, as everybody knows. The United States has a very different approach where all that data lives. So I think context is is super important. I also think that the the end user, right, most of of, um, you know, most of the services we provide are for college, university, and older students. Very different context than, you know, uh, primary and, and secondary. So all of those things, I think, factor into how we need to approach however we're going to either regulate AI, how companies put guardrails around AI. But I agree uh, definitely in principle is that, you know, a level of transparency so that people can can decipher and understand, you know, what these systems are doing and what is being done with their with their data is, is absolutely important. And, and as, a, as a company that's very student first, for us, top of mind is, are we delivering uh, support for students um, in a way that they will continue to trust us is, is, is of utmost importance. So I appreciate it. Thank you, Nina. Jim, final words from you. Look, I think this is a, a conversation that will run and run. <laughs> and uh, I, I sometimes wake up in a cold sweat worrying that I'm going to end up spending the rest of my days being a tech regulator um, as opposed to being someone who's passionate about education and, and the development of children and but that uh, there aren't enough of us in the uh, parliaments who have a, enough confidence and enough uh, uh, yeah, to, to engage with it and, and are kind of aware enough of the bits that we don't understand <laughs> to ask for help from people like you, Rose, uh, and, um, and, and to ask for help from the tech companies. You know, they're not all bad. You know, I've, I've had some really good engagement with Google YouTube this week to help me with an issue, but, but that doesn't mean that I don't have concerns that, 
you know, we've got children using Google Classroom up and down, you know, all over the world. Um, what happens to their data? Can I be absolutely sure that I trust that it won't be used to sell advertising to them when they become adults? I don't know. You know, I do know that uh, a huge proportion of the world's advertising spend is spent spent through Google, and you know they've used that data to monetize, and that goes back to purpose again, um, and being clear about why it's free. So, uh, look, we, what Nina said about transparency is just a, a really good way to end. We've got to be transparent to users. We've got to allow researchers into companies so that they can independently you know, on the right commercial terms, but but independently be able to see what's going on so that we have academic understanding too of how the AI is being deployed, uh, what the uh, dangers are, et cetera. Um, but it's it's exciting. You know, it's really exciting what this could create. Um, and, you know, can this be the thing that unlocks creating a world where each one of us can thrive and the planet thrive and have a public sector that that stacks up financially. You know, big, big problems for the world at the moment to work out how we do that. And the, for me, the only game in town to help us uh, to achieve that is technology. That is a great place to end. Thank you both. I wish we could talk more. It's fascinating. So many thanks to Nina Hunterman, Chief Academic Officer at Chegg, and Lord Jim Knight for joining me today. That's been absolutely great. Here at Educate Ventures Research, we are doing our own little bit to try and help people uh, cut through the noise when it comes to AI and education. We have a free newsletter called The Skinny on AI and education. It's freely downloadable from the website. You can sign up on the website. So have a look and see what you think. And if you can't find it, just email hello at educateventures.com and we'll point you in the right direction. I really appreciate having Jim and Nina join us today. That has been absolutely brilliant. And I think, as you said, Jim, the conversation will go on and on and on. These are really important, but also exciting issues. I hope that wherever you're listening, you found our discussion informative and practical and that you have something to use or to share with your teams in the coming days. If you want more information on the series and our wonderful guests, please visit EdTech Podcast website, which is www.theedtechpodcast.com and connect to us via social media. To see how Educate is keeping evidence at the heart of EdTech, go to www.educateventures.com or join the conversation on LinkedIn. You've been listening to the EdTech Podcast presented by myself, Professor Rose Luckin, with guests Nina Hunterman and Lord Jim Knight. Thank you so much for joining us.